talk in a microphone. That felt good, right? Yeah, it's always good to to get some of that as a part of what we do when we to get the time to worship and stuff. And so if you got your Bibles, why don't you turn to Nehemiah chapter Nehemiah in the in the Old Testament? And so thank you, Sean. So uh Turn to Nehemiah, you can find it there. If you find Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, you can find uh, the story that we're going to go through. So, it's an interesting time that we live in, would you agree? Yeah, it's, um, you know, we, we say it, you say it, and yet the reality is that the longer it goes on, the more absurd it seems to be at some level, Right? Um, you know, and with school starting, um, and the challenges that that has posed for teachers, for educators, for parents, for students, um, there's a lot, there's a lot going on. And listen, you turn on the TV, um, we've got cities that are burning to the ground. We've got all kinds of societal issues. We've got We've got California basically burning to the ground because some people wanted to announce whether they were a boy or a girl and set a bunch of woods on fire. And uh, we've got an incredibly contentious election coming up in our country. And we still haven't even begun to recover from the COVID virus. We don't even know where that's going to go. And so there's a lot going on, right? And... Um, there's a lot of businesses that have closed. We talk to people here in our community who own businesses who say that if things continue the way they are, they'll only be able to keep the doors of their business open uh, probably for the next three months. And these are people that have been in business for 15, 20, 25 years in our community. It's, it's taking a toll on people. I read an article two weeks ago that said the divorce rate is skyrocketing during COVID. Imagine that, right? Um, almost every every survey that you read says that alcohol consumption is up, that drug addiction is up, ER visits are up. Um, there's just a lot going on. And it isn't just a country that we are watching to some degree fall apart but we're watching the core elements of our society that are also being attacked. And many of you are living through that right now. You're living it in your homes. You're living it with your children. Uh, you're living it personally because of what's taken place in your life because of events over the last um, several, several months. And here's the reality. Uh, with the election coming up and the way that that's being conducted by can you believe this? The way it's being conducted by grown men and women acting that. Can you imagine if your children acted that petulant in school, right? Nobody finds that funny but me. I, I can tell you this, that if I acted like either party in my job here, I would have been fired a long time ago. And we're going to elect one of those people president. I should just pray and go home because that's just embarrassing to me. But this isn't a political forum. Somebody say amen, right? Uh, that's not what we're. That's not what we're here to do, right? We're we're a part of a kingdom that hasn't fully come yet. Our king is not present yet, and this world and everything in it, according to Peter, is going to pass away. Amen, church. And so, 
planting roots in a place that Scripture tells us is not our home, where we are strangers and aliens, is absurd, right? Our home is yet to come, and our home will be eternal. And when it comes, it will be here, and this earth will be restored to its original design, and we will reign victorious in it. Amen, church? Right? That's, that's who we get to be. But in the middle of that, we've got all kinds of challenges in our life. We've got these obstacles we have to overcome. We've got these relationships that need rebuilt. We have families that need to be rebuilt. We have communities that need to be rebuilt. We have race relationships that need to be rebuilt. We have all of these issues that are being torn down and have been torn down for a while. And so I just think it's appropriate for us to spend some time looking at a man who went into an environment where things were tore down and decided to rebuild it and see if there are any principles that you and I can take away from what Nehemiah did. And so we're going to do that for the next five weeks together. We're going to take a look at what Nehemiah did when he went to rebuild the wall in Jerusalem. So I'm going to ask, uh, do you have, uh, Romans 15, four back there? All right. I'm just going to ask you to stand. We're going to read this one verse together. This is sort of the verse that I'm going to use to um, launch into this conversation. This is why we're doing an Old Testament character, why we're doing somebody that, that lived nearly 3,000 years ago. Here's what Paul writes. He said, for everything that was written in the past was written to teach who? Everybody say it. Everybody say us. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach, say it, us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement that they provide, we might have hope. Man, our world needs hope. All right, I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book right now. And one of the main characters in the book said this. You break a country the same way you break a man. You take away their hope. Right? We live in a world today where people are desperately trying to find something to hope in, right? Paul tells us there is admonition, encouragement for our hope found in these stories written in the past. And so my hope is, is that, that that's what we'll find as we journey this thing together and talk about the idea of rebuilding. So let's, let's just pray. Father, today, I thank you for the moments that we get to spend together. I thank you for your spirit that binds, binds all of us as believers together um, in peace and in unity. Uh, Father, I pray for the, the, the word today to, be, to, to go forth and accomplish your purposes and to not return void. And I pray, Father, for your spirit to do the work that you promised that he would do when he comes. And that is to bring conviction to us, to bring wisdom to us, to us, and to bring truth to us. So, Lord, I pray this today in the name of Jesus and all of God's people said, amen. All right, you guys can grab a seat. So let's talk about Nehemiah. So I'm not going to get into a ton of detail just because I don't want to get bogged down. You can read through Nehemiah. But historically, historically, what's going on in Nehemiah is pretty simple. The nation of Israel, God's chosen people, were disobedient. They got ahead of themselves. They got disconnected from God. And God split the nation 
into two countries, Israel and Judah, and he sent enemy forces into Israel uh, in the form of the Assyrians and took over the nation of Israel in the 700 BCs and deported those people out of their homeland and made them refugees. And then around 586 BC, right? The Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar came into Judah where the city of Jerusalem is located, where the temple, right, was located. And they went in and they tore it down. They burnt the city to the ground and they took the Jews into captivity and they deported them into what is modern day Iraq, Babylon, right? And left, left God's chosen people in captivity and let God's holy city and his home, the temple, be completely destroyed. And so it laid that way for 70 years before Jewish people were allowed to go back into Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And so that's what happened in the book of Ezra. Two groups of Jews are allowed to go back into Jerusalem and they ultimately, eventually, it takes them 14 years, but they rebuild the temple. And finally they get it up and that part of Jerusalem is now restored. It wasn't the glory of Solomon's temple. And so there were people who were sad because it paled in comparison. And there were people who rejoiced because at least it was a place where God promised that he would dwell. Fast forward several more years and we pick up the story of Nehemiah. Listen, some 140 years after Jerusalem was ransacked by a nation, right? The Babylonians destroying that, that, that city and deporting those people nearly 140 years later is where Nehemiah chapter one picks up. And we read these verses in Nehemiah one. It says the words of, I lost it. It says the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, bring that verse back up. In the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some of the other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Right? So he's aware that Jews have gone back into Judah. He's aware of, of, of the difficulty in that. And so he questions, right? He questions these travelers from Judah and he gets this answer in verse three. He says, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and are in disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been burned with fire. And he says, when I heard these things, Nehemiah said, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. So that's the story. So 140 years after, after Judah is captured by an enemy nation, 140 years after Jerusalem is ransacked, the temple is torn down and the walls are burnt to the ground, 140 years later... Right? Nehemiah is now involved in this story in a city and a country that he's never even been to. Never been there. And he asked one question. Tell me what's going on in my home country. Tell me what's going on in Jerusalem. 
And the report comes back, it's not good, right? The people there are basically in a mess and the city itself is unprotected. And what lived in the city? The temple, the presence of God, right? <coughs> and so that causes Nehemiah to have a reaction. So here's what I want to do. <clears throat> I want to kick off this series by just taking out of this first chapter what I believe are three spiritual or three just realities that if you and I are going to rebuild anything, listen, 30 some years of marriage, 11 years of being here, 50 some years living, um, too many kids and way too many grandkids, right? All those issues that come up, right? Here's, here's, here's what I know. We all go through seasons where things in our life have to be rebuilt, right? I mean, listen, I don't care. I, I don't care if you're black or white. I don't care if you're Republican or Democrat. Our nation is a disaster. We have cities and states that are falling apart. And the problem with the macro version of our dysfunction is that it's destroying families on the micro level. Individual families like you and I are paying the price for what's happening in our nation today. And you may not feel like you're affected by it yet, but there are other people who have already been impacted by it, right? Can you imagine trying to be a single mom in some of the states where your full-time job has now become principal and teacher and PE instructor and lunch lady to your kids, all the while not knowing whether you're going to have any money coming in to pay the bills? And that, that reality is facing hundreds and hundreds of thousands of families across our nation. They don't have jobs. They're homeschooling their kids. Listen, one of the great things about being a parent of kids that go to public school is you get them out of your house for a while, right? Please take them, right? And I know some of you that are homeschooling your kids are like, that's terrible. You didn't raise my kids, okay? And, and those realities are facing people, right? Not to mention, listen, the virus, right? The virus has become such a stupid topic in our society because of the politics around everything that happens with it. And here's the reality. It's a, I thought you were coming up to tell me to get off the stage, Victoria. Thank you. That the virus has, listen, the virus has claimed lives, parents and grandparents and sons and daughters and grandsons and granddaughters, Right. There are people who are grieving the loss of loved ones because of this virus. And yet we argue about it as if it has no real significance in people in the micro level. And we argue about masks and we argue about social distancing and we argue about this and we argue about that. And the reality is COVID has destroyed families. And because of COVID, we can't have funerals. We can't go to the hospital and visit people. My wife's lifelong dearest friend that she's been friends with for almost 45 years is dying of stage four pancreatic cancer. She has spent the last month of her life in a hospital bed and she has not been allowed to see her husband, her mother, or her best friend because of COVID. 
And had she not admitted to getting hospice, she would have died in that hospital without ever seeing her family one more time. And that's the reality of what's happening in our world with people today. Listen, I think there are things in our world today, and I know there are things in your life today that need to be rebuilt. And how do we go about doing it? Because the task can be overwhelming. How do we do that? I think, honestly think that we can learn some things from Nehemiah. Listen, we're not building a wall, right? Ormond doesn't have a wall, right? Back in the day, cities needed fortified. They had to have a wall. And a wall was built to protect what was valuable inside. That's why you had a wall, right? Because the wall said that what's inside is worth protecting, right? God wanted his people and he wanted his place protected. And so they needed a wall. And so he had to go about figuring that out. But how did he get from Babel or from Persia, right? Over 900 miles away without airplanes and without railroads. How did he get from 900 miles away in Persia all the way back to Jerusalem to a city he'd never seen, a country he'd never been in because he was born in captivity? How did he get from where we're at with Here's the news I got, and it, it, it broke me up to building a wall. Those are the lessons that I want us to take and try to apply to our lives in those situations in your life of things that need to be rebuilt. So here's what we're going to do. We've got three of them tonight. We've got these three, what I think are just realities for every person who's trying to rebuild. Nehemiah has these. The first one's this. It's found in the first four verses. He has a personal response. Right? Bring that verse, bring um, ch- chapter 1, verse 3 back up there, would you, David? Listen to what it says. He asked the question, what's happening back home? Right? What happened to the exiles? He said this. This was his res- the response he got. He said, those who survived, the Jews who survived the exile are back in the province. They're in great trouble and they're in disgrace. Right? They're the object of scorn. Right? And not only that, that idea of great trouble is the idea of heavy conflict, right? These people are in heavy conflict and they are, they are being outed. They are being made fun of. They are being talked about. They have become a laughingstock. Jerusalem, the city of quote unquote God and its temple don't even have a wall. They're under disgrace. He says the wall of Jerusalem is broken down. 140 years it's been broken down. Some of you who are in relationships think that your spouse would let something be broke forever. This wall's been down for 140 years, right? You're mad if he doesn't take the trash out now, right? 140 years this has taken. He says the wall's down, its gates have been burned with fire. And here's what Nehemiah's response was. He had a personal response. He said, when I heard these things, what things? The things about a city being broken down and needing to be rebuilt. He said this, I sat down and I what? I wept. I wept. I'm a crier. Who's my cry? Where's my criers in the room? Come on, let me see it, right? Yeah, two to one, men over women, every time, every time, right? Here was his response. 
It was personal. And he wept. Let, let me read a couple of verses to you before I say anything. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 9 here. Verse 36. Matthew nine thirty six. When he saw the crowds, Jesus, listen to this. He had what? Come on, everybody say compassion. Right? He had compassion on them. Why? Because they were harassed. They were helpless. And they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. He had compassion on these helpless, harassed, and lost people. Listen to what it says in 2 Corinthians 2.4. Paul wrote this to a church. He said, for I wrote you out of great distress. This is a church full of people who were, who were difficult to lead, who were acting like when the cat's away, the mice will play. They were bringing all kinds of disrepute to the church because of their moral and immoral choices. And Paul wrote this. He said, I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many, what? Many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Did you get that? He associated his anguish and his tears with his great love for them. Right? Jeremiah said this. In relationship to Jerusalem. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears. I would weep day and night for the slain of my people. Listen, I, I can tell you this from personal and I can tell you this from professional. If you ever want to rebuild anything, you're going to have to feel a burden for that thing that's broken in the first place. Right? You're gonna to have to feel a burden for that. Right? One of the one of the authors that I that I read said this the people that God uses has a burden for his people. Right? Listen, part of the problem that we have, listen, I'm not I'm not here to, to, to try to fix our country, right? I truly only care about what we as a church do representing God in this world. Can I get an amen? Okay, four people. Thank you. Hang in there, right? It's truly all I care about. Don't want to talk politics with you. I don't want to talk about those, those issues. It's not about a not having a love for my country. It's about understanding what kingdom's going to last and which kingdoms won't. And our job, our job, isn't to make America great again. Our job is to lift the name of Jesus on high so people can come to faith in Him as their Lord and Savior. Can I get an amen? amen? We can leave making America great again to the president, right? But our job, our job, Christ followers, right, is to lead people into an opportunity to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. That's our job, right? And here's what I know. We live in a world where it is broken and breaking down. And if we're ever, listen, if we're ever going to succeed in our mission, the first thing that you and I have to have is some kind of personal response about what's happening in our world that moves us to feel the burden of what's happening. 
Listen, you can't fix your marriage if you're not burdened by its brokenness. You can't fix your kids in the relationship with your children if you're not fixed or if you're not burdened by its brokenness. You can't fix your family dynamic if you're not burdened by its brokenness. And you cannot fix a country if you're not burdened by its brokenness. We have no shot at making a difference in what our mission is until we feel some of that anguish and some of those tears that men like Nehemiah and Jesus and Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul cried. And listen, I'm not on social media, but I've got enough friends that are. And here's what I know about social media. It is the death of Christianity. Because we talk and we act like we ain't got no sense. Right? We talk and we act like we ain't got no sense, like we haven't got something better to be doing. Listen, it is not possible to find people that we can lead to Jesus if we don't feel a burden for them. We spend so much time trying to justify why they're wrong that we don't take the time to feel the burden for the fact that they're just lost. That drives me crazy. Because the older I get, the more burden I feel for what, for what people go through. I'm not here, listen, I'm not here and neither are you to be judges of what their lives consist of. Our job is to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. Can I get an amen? amen. Right there, there is a time when God will judge. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Amen? It's not our job. Our job is to be salt and light to the world. Why? Because people need to find a relationship with Jesus if they want to spend eternity with God in heaven. Amen? That means your kids and your grandkids that are on Twitter and on Instagram, right? That are developing attitudes and beliefs about policies and procedures and presidential candidates, right? And are fighting all of these, all of these fronts and are developing these passions for all of that. Your children and my children, your grandkids and my grandkids will stand before Jesus one day and answer for their eternal destiny. And it won't matter if America is great or not. It'll only matter. Do they know Jesus? Right? And listen, we, we can't make a difference till we feel a burden for that. And listen, when things are going well, man, we feel a burden for people in Africa and we feel a burden for people in Guatemala and we feel a people burden for people in Haiti. But man, it seems like in the current world that we live in, the church has developed a lack of compassion and burden for the broken thing in our world today. And listen, I don't believe in either or when it comes to most of the decisions that people force us to make, right? You've got to be this or that. You've got to choose this or that. Baloney. I know I don't. I'm smart enough to understand how to care for people who are broken, whether or not I agree with their politics. We are capable of that. Listen, I'm just going to say this and I'm going to be done at this point. Jesus walked the earth for 30 plus years under the regime of one of the most despicable nations that ever put their foot on the ground, the Roman Empire. They were despicable. Their cruelty to human beings because they weren't Romans 
are things that novels and movies are made about. They treated human beings who weren't Romans any way they wanted and the law protected them. And that nation ruled Jerusalem. It ruled Israel. And Jesus walked the planet underneath the tyranny of a Caesar who treated people like garbage and set them aflame on crosses and put them in the Colosseum to be fed to lions. And you know what Jesus said about that government? He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar and give to God what's God's. And when the Roman soldier enacts the law and forces you to walk one mile, you give him the second one for free. And when that Roman soldier enacts the law and says, give me your coat, Jesus said, you go and give him your cloak also. And when that Roman soldier enacts the law to smite you on the cheek, you go ahead and just give him the second one for free. That's what Jesus did. And that's what he told his followers to do. And today, somehow we've lost that. And we've justified all of our decisions to get into a realm that... Listen, we were never supposed to get into. Republicans and Democrats need Jesus. Can I get an amen? Amen. Donald Trump and Joe Biden need Jesus. Right? They all need Jesus. How are they going to find him? If the people who are given the responsibility to share the message aren't even burdened and broken into tears over what's happening in our world. We've got to begin to feel some kind of personal response, some emotional response, some compassion and empathy. What's going on? And listen, if you're not capable of having empathy without also knowing you're not forgoing the truth, then you need to come and see me so we can equip you to do that. Listen, just because I'm empathetic to my children for their stupidity doesn't mean I'm affirming their stupidity. Right? I can be, I can be compassionate and broken for my children. And still not move from the truth. Being empathetic doesn't make you a non-believer who isn't capable of holding on to the truth. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Right? And the Bible says that truth. What truth? Jesus is the truth will set you free. And he offered grace and truth. And in the Greek, that's the order. And order matters to God. You cannot convince people of truth until you come at them with grace. You can't convince a Roman soldier to believe in a savior till you go the second mile for free. You can't convince a Roman government to accept Jesus until you give them the other cheek. You cannot convince those people who don't know Jesus by holding on to your coat when they force you to give them the cloak. You do it by grace first and you do it by truth second. We live with a hammer and then we want to get a hug. It don't work that way. We lead with the hug and then we show them the truth. Because you got to have a personal response if you're ever going to rebuild anything. That's my sermon. No, I'm not done yet, right? Some of you are wishing Wednesday nights were over already. Right? How about this? Spiritual assessment. Spiritual assessment. So once we go from a personal response, we've got to get to a spiritual assessment. Okay? This is really important. Right? We gotta go, everybody say personal response. Right? Into say spiritual assessment. You're doing well. You're doing well, right? 
Here's what Nehemiah 1 says. It said in verse 4, when I heard these things, he said, I sat down and wept. First, listen to this. For some days, he didn't hear the news and cry for 30 minutes, right? It says that he, for some days, mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. He was burdened. He was burdened for the brokenness that needed to be rebuilt. He had a personal response to that first. And then it says in verse 5, he said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God. One of the greatest prayers recorded in scripture is this prayer here. He said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I can, listen to this. He says, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family. The man has never been to Israel. He's never stood foot in Jerusalem. The building, the, the, the city and the gates and the walls have been torn down for 140 years. And he associates himself with those people. He says, we. He said, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. He said, we've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commandments or the decrees and the laws that you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. This is Nehemiah reminding God of his promise. Sort of like when your kids said, dad, you promised, right? This is what Nehemiah is saying. He said, but if you return to me, this is Nehemiah reminding God, you said this to Moses. But if you return to me, Israel returns to me and obeys my commands, then even if you are exiled people, even if you're exiled people at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and I'll bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants. Listen to this. These people, these exiles, they are your servants. They are your people whom you redeemed, who you rescued by your great strength and your mighty hand. Listen, this is so important. Okay. I try not to make this complicated by being too wordy like I was in the first point. Right. Holy cow. It's 728. Right. Uh, I can just tell you right now, I'm not quitting at 730. So hang on. We're going to finish. Okay. Everybody okay with that? All right. If you're not, if you're not, I'm okay with you leaving. I get that, right? It's my first night. You got to forgive me. I got caught up. Listen, I, listen, I, I'm, I, I'm 56 and I have a political view and I have an opinion. And I don't know if you know this, but I'm fairly opinionated about some things, okay? I don't talk politics with people. I talk politics with one person, my best friend who lives far away from here, and we do it on the phone. I do not talk politics with anybody else here, right? I live in the same world you do. I see the same things that you do. And I'm not blinded to what's happening in the world. Do I have an opinion about the country I want America to be? Absolutely. Okay? We're on the same page about that. I spent time, five years, working as a police officer, right? I get the struggle. I've never been a black person, so I don't get that struggle. There are things I understand and there are things I don't. But what I am more than anything is a follower of Jesus. And what I know today is our world is in desperate need of hope. 
They're in desperate need of hope. And what I know is, is that the message of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, gives us hope. Amen? It gives us hope. And until we are burdened by the brokenness in our world, whether it's black people or white people, whether it's millennials or whether it's boomers, right? It does not matter whether it's all lives, if it's blue lives or black lives or red lives. It doesn't matter until we are burdened by the brokenness of our world and have a desire to rebuild. It's going to be hard for us to do anything constructive. Because what I see in most people who follow Jesus today is anger, hatred, vitriol, ready to fight. Listen, I'm not saying that it's easy to keep that stuff away from what's happening in our world. It's really, really hard. It's why I drive so much in the car by myself so nobody has to hear me, right? But when I'm in public and I'm with my family and I'm with in the in the community I live in, I want I want my brokenness about the burden of our world to be what comes out in me toward people because more than anything, I want them to vote for Jesus. That's what I want our church to care about. That's what I want you to care about, right? That's what I want, right? You you can you, listen, if you're gonna clap, don't be timid. Just clap it up, right? There you go. The only way you're going to get people to clap with you is you just clap it up, right? Now, if you try to lead people in laughter by overselling a joke, you're in trouble, right? But once, listen, but once we feel the burden, we, we've got to connect it to the spiritual reality of what's going on in the world. Listen, part of the reason there's so much hatred about what's happening in our world today is because we have assessed this as a completely black-white issue. We've assessed this as a as us versus them issue. And listen, I get that to lots of people it feels that way. But for followers of Jesus, let's be clear. If you're a visitor, if you're a visitor online, listen, you just got into a very bizarre family discussion, okay? And you're wondering whether you're ever going to come back again. I get it, right? But I'm talking to Jesus followers. I'm talking to those of us who claim to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Our agenda is different. Our agenda is to fill that burden and then to assess spiritually what's happening in our world today. Nehemiah understood that Jerusalem needed a wall. They had no plan. They had no people. And they had... No prosperity to get it done. They had some real tangible issues. But before he ever designed a plan to build a physical wall, he made a spiritual assessment. And here's what he came up with. God, we're sorry. We've been disobedient to you. We've made a mockery of your laws and your decrees and your commands. We've walked away and God, you kept your promise. You said to us, if we didn't do it, you would kick us out. And you did. He made a spiritual assessment. He also made a spiritual assessment about God's promise. And he said, you said to us through Moses, God, if we did this, you'd kick us out. But you also said, if we got it right and came back, you'd bring us from all over the world back to the place that you call home. He made a spiritual assessment. 
See, part of why we're not having any success in trying to fix what we consider to be broken, what we consider to be blasphemy, what we consider to be completely out of line, is because one, we're not burdened by the brokenness. We're angry. We're frustrated. We're mad. We're posting stuff on Facebook and posting videos and we're liking stuff and we're, we're reposting and we're retweeting and we're doing all of this stuff. And none of it says that we have a brokenness. Most of it just says I have a platform and so I'm going to beat it to death. But we also aren't making a spiritual assessment of what's happening in the world. I'm going to read a couple of verses to you. Second um, Corinthians seven nine to eleven, right? Second Corinthians seven nine to eleven. It's in that point down there a little bit further. This is Paul talking to a church about their brokenness, right? Here's what he said. He's writing to them a third letter. We have two of them in our Bibles, but there's at least a third letter. And Paul says this: Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry. Because the letter that he, the second letter he wrote that we don't know anything about, he said that letter, he said, because your sorrow, your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Listen to this. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, right? Worldly sorrow brings about what? Death. It doesn't have any power. Not when we're making a spiritual assessment. He said this. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness. What Listen to, listen to what having a spiritual assessment provides you the power with... How it provides you power to do the next right thing. He said this. See what this godly sorrow... So these people read Paul's letter. They made a spiritual assessment of their lives. And these were people that were messed up. We had a family in the church in Corinth, right? The stepson was sleeping with his stepmom and they were all attending church together and everybody was fine with it. And Paul said, that can't happen. And he called them on the carpet and he wrote a letter and they responded to that letter by making a spiritual assessment and it led to repentance. And here's what it said. Bring that up. He says, so that assessment that led to repentance, look what it did. It produced in you earnestness. It produced in you an eagerness to clear yourselves. It produced in you indignation and alarm and longing and concern. It produced in you readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourself to be innocent in this matter. Listen, we don't have a shot at rebuilding anything. A marriage, a relationship, a home, right? We don't have a chance to restore anything rebuilding if we're not moved personally first. Until we have that moment of great anguish for what's happening. Not just for a macro country, but for a micro home. For a best friend relationship. Until there's a burden in us personally, I can tell you the only response you're going to have is either apathy or anger. But once you get that response, connect it to the spiritual reality of what's going on. I can tell you right now, if you have a broken home and a broken relationship, you have a spiritual issue. Can somebody say yes? Right? We have an issue. And until we address and assess that issue... We're not fixing anything, right? We're just putting up a wall. 
We need to connect to what's happening. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 5.14. This is one of my favorite, this is one of my favorite perspectives that's helped me not to take, has helped me to learn not to take things personally. It says, listen to this, this is Paul. He said, for Christ's love, is this Christ's love compels us. Christ's love for who? Christ's love not for myself, Christ's love for you. For everyone. That love, he says, compels us because we are convinced. Listen to this. We are convinced of what? That one died for all. Come on. Somebody say amen. Amen. Right? Who's the one that died for all? Everybody say his name. Right? His name is Jesus. Right? That one. Here's what we're convinced of. Jesus died for who? He died for black people. He died for white people. He died for Republicans and Democrats. He died for millennials and baby boomers. He died for your worst enemy and your best friend. He died for your children and my children. He died for your grandkids and my grandkids. And he died for you and he died for me. And that's what we believe, right? When we get buried into a physical fight without a spiritual assessment, we negate the power of that statement. And he said this, the love of Jesus for everybody compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore how many died? Do you get, listen, do you get that? Jesus died for everybody so that everybody has already died, which means everybody has already taken care of their debt before God. We just got to tell them it's already done. But if we don't do this next part, we'll never do that. Listen to what he says. And he says he died for all. Everybody say for all. Listen, you cannot lose sight of that about in what's happening in our world today. If you lose sight of the all part and you make it just for some, we negate the power of the gospel to save everybody. He said this, he died for all. That those who live, listen to this. Jesus followers online and Jesus followers here. Can I get an amen? Here's what he says to us. He says this, and he died for all, which means he died. Everybody say for me, right? Everybody online and everybody in here say Jesus died for me, right? And he died for me. Why? That those who live should no longer live for, come on, man. We don't live for ourselves anymore. Why? Because for him who died for them and was raised again. Listen, man, when we become a follower of Jesus, we're not the boss anymore. We're now living our lives in faith for Jesus to do his goodwill in and through us. Which means we serve the mission. And what's the mission? To tell everybody Jesus died for all. And therefore all people died. That's called good news. And we're supposed to tell it. And if we're busy fighting Democrats and Republicans and blacks and whites. And we're fighting all of these physical realities. I'm not diminishing the reality of how stinking difficult and crazy and broken our world is. I'm simply saying as a church, our mission is bigger and it's greater and it's far more expansive than just picking a political party. It's about picking everybody of every color, of every race, of every tribe, of every tongue, and of every language. That's what we do. 
And when we don't assess things spiritually, we miss the mark. And so Paul closes it with this verse here. This is one of my life verses. He says, so from now on, from now on, when is the now on? When we accepted Jesus. So from the point we accepted Jesus, he said this, we regard, we, listen to this, we regard no one. Everybody say no one. We regard no one from a worldly point of view. Come on, man, just tell me as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, who claims to make a home, if we stopped seeing people from a worldly point of view, how much different would we treat them? A ton, right? Listen, part of the reason we struggle with people is because we look at them from a worldly point of view. Listen, I hate, I hate Green Bay Packer fans. I can't stand Aaron Rodgers. I hope every year he gets hurt in the first game and is out the rest of the year. I hate the St. Louis Cardinals. I hate their fans except for one, okay? I don't like these people. And, if, and, and, and listen, I make fun of that, but you have no ideal idea how, how deep the passion is for my Chicago Bears and therefore how deep my hatred is for Green Bay. And I'll be honest with you, if I viewed people from a worldly point of view, I'd never speak to a Packer fan ever. But just to tell you how, how much I've matured in the last year, we had our fantasy football draft two days ago, and I drafted Aaron Rodgers on my team. Because I'm not seeing people from a worldly point of view anymore. But I, I'm, I'm serious. If Jesus died for all, then he died for me. And if he died for all, then he died for you. And if he died for all, he died for Joe Biden. And if he died for all, he died for Donald Trump. And he died for every person in this world. And if Jesus died for you and you accepted it, we're just not the boss of us anymore. And we're supposed to see people differently. We no longer are supposed to see people from a worldly point of view. Because I can tell you, if we start seeing people from a worldly point of view, it's going to be hard to have friends. Because there's a lot of dumb people in the world. There's a lot of evil people in the world. There's a lot of hateful people in the world. Right? There's a lot of, you fill in the phrase, people in the world. And if we look at all of those people from a worldly voice, listen, I'm talking to Jesus followers. Can I get an amen? Listen, if you're a Jesus follower, this is for you. Listen, if you're not a Jesus follower, this is probably going to make you go home and go, why did I go there? I get that. But as Jesus followers, we have a different, we have a different code of conduct. We have a different constitution. We have a different Magna Carta. We have different marching orders. Our marching orders are to see everybody the same way because Jesus died for all, therefore all died. So now we've accepted it. Guess who we tell? We tell everybody. And you want to know why? Because we don't see anybody because they're Packer fans or because they're Republicans or Democrats, because they're black or white. And yet, look what the church has done throughout the years. We've seen people based on color. We've seen people based on politics. 
We've seen people based upon their sin. And we've cast them out and we've put them aside. And we've run kids, children off because they've done something stupid. And they've tattooed their face. And they've made these decisions. And every time we do that and we see people from a worldly point of view, we hurt the cause of Christ. And some of your kids will never, ever want to go into a church because they saw it happen to you. We can't be effective with the gospel that way, church. And our world is broken and it needs to be rebuilt. And here's the last thing. Once we get a spiritual, uh, a spiritual assessment after a, an emotional or personal response, we need a pragmatic reality. This is my favorite verse of the entire chapter. Here's what it says in verse 11. He's, this, in verse 11, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man I was cupbearer to the king. Being a cupbearer is like being an executive pastor. Okay? Here's what the expository Bible commentary says about being a cupbearer. Nehemiah notes he was a cupbearer. The cupbearer was a high position in the court. His responsibility, check this out. His responsibility was to choose and taste the wine before it was served to the king to make sure... That it was not poisoned. Now I know some of you are saying, sign me up right now, right? Listen, he would have been handsome, well-trained in court etiquette. He would, have, he would have to be a friendly companion, willing to lend an ear, and even to give advice to the king. And since he enjoyed the closest access to the king other than his wife, he was a highly trusted man. Early documents also reveal that the cupbearer could be the keeper of the royal signet, right? That, that they put in the wax to signify this was from the king. He could be in charge of administration of all of the financial accounts and even serve as second in command to the king. Nehemiah was second to the king in Persia. And he needed to go from that spot Answering to a Gentile king, asking that man to give a Jewish exile permission to go home 900 miles away and build a wall. Listen, let's not be, let's not be wide-eyed and bushy-tailed and act like everything is going to be perfect. Let's face the reality of our world today. We are living in racial divide like we have never seen. We are watching our world of our, our country of law and order be systematically torn down, right? We are watching our children because of COVID begin to suffer emotional realities that will take years and years to fix. We are watching financial ruin destroy not only businesses, but families across our nation all over the place. And more than anything, we are watching a group of people lose hope in anything they once believed in. And we now have two political parties who are willing to say and do most anything to take over the highest office in our land. And you and I, you and I are going to be the victims of that. We have a really difficult reality. And that's just at a big picture. 
Some of you are living in a marriage that's falling apart, that's on the verge of divorce. Some of you are living in relationships where there's been unfaithfulness and there's been betrayal and there's been hurt or there's been violence. Some of you are raising children that have, that have become completely estranged to you. And they have struggled and they have found their way to coping mechanisms for their loss of hope or for their trauma that they're facing. And you no longer have a relationship with them. We're watching people suffer and suffer and suffer and suffer and die alone because of COVID. We're watching people's lives being destroyed by any number of things in our world at a, at a micro level and at a macro level. Listen, having an emotional response and carrying the burden and then having a spiritual assessment is necessary. But we need a pragmatic reality. We've got to see the world for what it is. We've got to find the harsh reality and begin to deal with that. Nehemiah said this, I was cupbearer to the king. Why was that written? So that he would know and the reader would know he had an obstacle and many of them to overcome to get from where he was at to rebuild that wall. Listen, we got a long way to go, church. we got a lot of obstacles to overcome. Let's be pragmatic about them, right? But let's understand this. It starts with a burden. It starts with you feeling the burden for what's broken. It requires you and I to stop seeing things from a worldly perspective and seeing things through the lens and the eyes of God. And then it also requires us to take off those glasses that are rose-collared and see the world for what it is. See your marriage for what it is. See your finances for what they are. See your family relationship for what it is so that we can move forward and we can rebuild what's broken. That's my hope. So next week we're going to come back and I'm going to cut this thing down about 20 minutes. Okay. I promise. Listen, I haven't preached in a while. Okay. So I needed to rant and rave for about 20 minutes. Okay. So I truly, truly, I apologize to those of you online. It was easy for you to leave, but for you all in here, it's always a little more difficult. So I apologize. I'll cut that down next week. Don't don't not come back next week because you're like, oh my gosh, we're back to going an hour and a half. I promise you we won't. I'll be better. I get to preach three times this weekend, so that'll help me feel better, right? And then I'll be back next Wednesday and I'll feel, I'll feel more regulated and we'll get better. So read chapter two, read chapter two, and we'll step into more of what it takes to rebuild. Let's pray. Father, today, thank you. I know it doesn't matter to you, God, and I know it doesn't matter to to many people, but I know there are people down the hall, uh, that it does matter to. And so I do pray that you would, that you would continue to place that awareness and conviction on me to be, to be responsible for my time in regard to considering others more important than myself. I pray and trust the power of your word to do what you said it would do. And I pray and trust the work of your spirit that you said he would do. Ultimately, Lord, I want every Christian to carry the burden of this broken world, to understand what's happening in it spiritually, to be honest about the realities they face, because ultimately I want them to rebuild what's broken and I want them to have hope once again. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.